All right. I'm just going to start over here. You guys are ready, okay? You guys came ready. Um, They're just here for each other. So, uh, no. You know, oh, we have visitors here. Okay, good. We're welcoming visitors. The... uh, I mean this, I said this in the first service too, but I think one of the truest signs of a healthy congregation is how long um, you guys love to hang out and talk, for real. I mean, it's, um, it's, it is very true that we, we need each other, and I'm glad to, glad to see that. I hope you have an opportunity to hang out on the patio or show up early on the patio to meet in life groups and do life together during the week. That That is church with a capital C right there. Um, if, uh, if we've not met, my name's Gary. I get to be one of the pastors around here. I'm really glad that you um, are with us this week. Um, I want to begin by telling you uh, just a, a little story that I remember from my childhood. I have really vivid memories of my mom always writing letters to her mom, to my grandma. Um, this was, you know, remember, this was uh, before email and stuff like that. This was, uh, this was when you had to pay for a long distance phone call. And, uh, so, uh, though, although my grandma's farm was maybe two and a half, three hours from where we lived in St. Louis, uh, my mom's primary method of communicating back and forth with her was through writing letters. And my mom, this was her method of writing letters. She would put a pad of paper on the dining room table and she would, write a little bit, but she would leave the paper there until the next day or next several days had passed, and then she'd write a little bit more. And um, this would go on for a week or two, maybe, until I guess she figured it was, you know, if she wrote any more, she would need to put two stamps on an envelope instead of one. But it was just kind of, this is what's going on uh, with the kids. This is what's going on in life. And and so she and my, and my grandma would would communicate back and forth through writing letters. This morning, we are going to read the first little bit of a letter. Uh, but before we read it, there's a couple of things that, uh, that you have to keep in mind. This letter that we're going to read this morning was not written in a really comfortable home um, around a dining room table. Uh, this letter was penned from a dank, musty prison cell. And you're going to notice, though, that um, just as uh, you would expect a, a letter written um, in someone's home to a grandma who's really upbeat, what you're going to notice, strangely, is this letter written from a prison cell is surprisingly upbeat. Um, so uh, the, the way it was originally penned is different than the way it looks now. Um, the author of this letter, Paul, did not write um, chapter one, verse one, as he was writing a letter. If you ever get a letter that begins with chapter one, get settled in. You're going to be there for a while, I think. But um, there were no chapters, chapter headings, or verses. These are things that were added much later uh, that would help us in referencing different sections of it. Uh, writer of the letter, a man named Paul. He's known as the Apostle Paul. Uh, this was probably written uh, around A.D. 60, which was 10 years after he first met the people that he's writing to. Now, when I say we refer to him as the Apostle Paul, what you're going to see is that the people he was writing to were really close friends, and they just knew him as Paul. This is Paul, our good friend. Um, these people lived in Philippi. Philippi was not a big town, just to give you a little bit of background information. It, 
estimated they had maybe 2,000 residents or so at the time. Uh, it's uh, in modern-day Turkey, if you're familiar with the Mediterranean Sea, a little bit north of that, about nine miles inland. And um, currently, nothing of Philippi exists other than maybe ruins, I suppose, but it's just kind of shepherd land, farmland at this point. But notably, at one point, it was known for its gold and silver mines. And we'll come back to that um, in a few weeks when we're in chapter 2. Uh, to know a little bit more about Paul and his friendship and how it formed with these people in Philippi, um, we can read in Acts chapter 16. If you're in a life group that does the discussion notes each week, then you may recall that last Sunday our discussion notes were Acts 16, uh, from Acts 16. So you may be a little bit familiar with this. If, if not, no big deal. I'll bring you up to speed and tell you what happened. Paul um, arrives in Philippi for the very first time, and he meets this very successful businesswoman named Lydia, who is there with uh, some other ladies. He leads Lydia to a saving faith in Christ. Um, as he's going around the town, he is annoyed by this demon-possessed woman. I love that it uses the word annoyed in Acts chapter 16. It's nice to know that, um, I, I don't know, that Paul was honking back at this lady. You're annoying me. And, uh, but annoyed him to the point that um, he actually helped her, um, miraculously delivered her from this demon that was possessing her, uh, was controlling her life. So she comes to know Christ. Um, as a result of doing that, though, it kind of financially created a rift in the community, and um, he was unjustly thrown in jail. And while he's in jail, an earthquake hits. Um, his chains are, apparently it was a sizable earthquake because he's now freed, but instead of using this as an opportunity to escape from jail, he stays in jail and leads the Roman jailer to Christ. In fact, um, what what was really probably cool in that day, what uh, Romans were used to saying, Caesar is Lord. And this is the first time that this jailer said, Jesus is Lord. And he goes back um, that same night, they go to the jailer's house um, and everybody in his household proclaims that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And they were all baptized. So this is, uh, this is what um, Acts chapter 16 gives us as a little bit of background for how this house church was formed. Um, this was the, the first of Paul's friends, the deep friendships that he made, and this little house church that we now know of as the church at Philippi. Uh, my mom was not the only one that wrote letters to my grandma. She got the kids in on the action. And I do remember sitting at the dining room table and my little boy handwriting, sketching some, uh, some letters to my grandma. Uh, it's, it's funny what we remember. I do recall after writing a letter one time, I put it in an envelope and just wrote grandma across the, t <laughs> across the letter. And that's when I learned you have to be a little bit more specific um, if you hope to get it there and put a stamp on it and all that stuff. Um, so... Um, so after, uh, it was about probably 25 years later or so, my grandma passed away. Uh, we went as a family to my grandma's house and kind of collecting some of her possessions. And I was actually a little bit surprised to see what she still had. She still had every one of those letters. We tend to keep some of the special letters, don't we? Which got me to thinking, Paul's letter must be pretty special. 
Because here we have it 2,000 years later. So what could be so special about this? Well, we're not going to read the whole letter this morning. We're just going to read a little bit. And over the next uh, six weeks, next week, um, Rick is going to be leading us through a little bit more in this letter. But we're going to begin by reading just uh, the first section of Philippians. And here's how we're going to do it. Instead of me reading it and then just write, ripping right into talking about it. I want to read it. And then I want to give you something that you have probably not had all week. A minute of silence. How's that sound? To some of you, you're like, oh, that would be heaven. Others of you are creeped out. What? <laughs> um, silence. Here's why. This is a letter that we're going to read, but more importantly, it is the word of the Lord. And I would love it if the Lord would get a jump start on the sermon and he would have a word for you. And so as, as I read through this, it's going to be on the screens. You might want to pull out that pew Bible in front of you and find Philippians and Um, Keep your finger in it. That's where we're going to be for the next few minutes. But as we're going through that, um, maybe God has something that he wants to say to you directly. Um, Honestly, the truth is God may not want to speak through me to you this morning. He might want to go straight to you. And so after we read it and we kind of give ourselves some moments of silence At that point, basically you're saying, Lord, is there something in this letter that you want me to pay special attention to? And in those moments of silence, um, we are just opening ourselves up to God's graces. All right? So let's read it. And let's listen. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, is there something already in this letter that you want us to pay attention to? Speak to us in the silence.
Thank you, God, for preserving this letter for us all these years later. Open our minds to understand it. Open our hearts to receive it. Amen. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. It may seem strange that someone would begin the letter with their signature. And we are accustomed to typically ending a letter with our signature. Uh, It was not uncommon in that day to begin with who was writing the letter. Um, And this could be just for a real practical reason if it was rolled up in a scroll form. Basically, you're keeping the recipients from having to unroll the entire thing just to figure out who it is that wrote it. That could be just a real practical reason for that. but whatever the reason, it was, it was common in that day. Um, in some of the other letters, and we have a, a collection of Paul's letters um, throughout the New Testament, uh, some we know for sure that are by him, and others we, we kind of speculate, but a number of letters that he wrote. And in some of those other letters, Paul begins by stating his credentials, such as Paul, an apostle called by Christ Jesus. Um, But this opening greeting to the Philippians is our first clue that he's writing to some really close friends. Paul identifies himself as a fellow servant. I'm I'm with you. He, from the very beginning, is kind of opening up his arms to the people he's writing to, and he's wanting to pull them in close and saying, I miss you guys. We've done this together for so long. And he's humbly saying, it's me. Just me, Paul. It's not Mr. Paul. It's not Reverend Paul. It's not Apostle Paul. It's just your buddy, Paul. And so Paul is writing to the saints. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the saints. Maybe a game later this afternoon. I don't know. But um, I want to be clear that the saints were not this special class of people who lived their lives in such a way that they were eventually voted into or elevated to uh, the place of sainthood. Um, Saints is a term that's used all throughout the New Testament, and every time it refers to someone who is a follower of Christ. It is referring to a sinner saved by grace. Um, uh, So in other words, we are saints. I remind my wife all the time, she is married to a saint. Your laughter hurts, okay? Um, so, so we have these sinners saved by grace, and then he gets a little bit more specific. He's also writing this letter to um, the overseers and deacons, or elders and deacons, or bishops and servants, however it's, it's uh, translated different ways. But um, what he is saying here is, we are all sinners saved by grace, and then there are some people that have special responsibilities in the church. Um, these terms for elder, overseer, and deacon, these are used in other places in the New Testament. And it's basically a way of identifying a specific role. The elders, overseers, typically would oversee the spiritual health of the church. Uh, The deacons were servants who were oftentimes given a more practical responsibility. Um, You could almost say a a secular, meaning a a real life need in that way. Um, In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, "Um, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That word for serve there is diakonos. It's the same word for deacon that's used here. 
And so he is, uh, he's not really saying, okay, you're a servant, you're dad. No, the, we actually get to do what Jesus himself lived out here on this earth. So the main thing I, I want you to see in all this is Paul was not positioning himself in a prominent or elevated position. He's, it's a level playing field. He sets that from the very beginning. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And you will see this word joy or rejoice is used multiple times in this letter, multiple times in this letter that he did not write from a comfortable dining room, but that he wrote from a very uncomfortable prison cell. I always pray with joy. And this word joy translates just the way you would think it. It's, it is a, it's a gladness, it's a cheerfulness, um, it's a calm delight is another way of thinking of this. And sometimes I like to read back some of these different definitions just to give me a, a fresh perspective on, a, on the same verse. So I'm going to do that. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with gladness because of you. I always pray with calm delight because of our partnership. These were dear friends, uh, and they worked their way into Paul's life from the very beginning. Not just into his life, they worked their way into Paul's heart from the very beginning. Uh, His friends in Philippi helped him financially. Um, When they heard that he was imprisoned in Rome, which is where he wrote this letter, he didn't write it from the the prison cell that had the earthquake. This was in Rome 10 years after he met them. Um, They sent a delegation to go be with them. Uh, be with Paul. Um, They prayed for him regularly. Uh, When he was in Philippi, they opened up their homes to him. Uh, Lydia was kind of the first one that we see um, to to do that for him. Um, They made available to him everything that they possessed. They were essentially saying, we are with you, Paul, all the way. You can count on us. And for this, Paul couldn't help but think about them regularly. And when he did, he would say, thank you. And it wasn't just a, hey, thanks. There was within him a warm, life-giving joy welling up within him. Verse six, being confident of this, and that word confident, you could kind of think of it as, um, there is no doubt in my mind. I did not have to work hard at persuading myself that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There is something very clearly, very evidently, that has begun in your life. So when did the good work begin? Did it begin when Paul showed up at Philippi? It may have been roughly around that time, but this work was when the Holy Spirit took up residence in their lives. It's when these sinners, saved by grace... It's when we're saved by grace, when they gave their life to Christ, when they said, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And so they were, this work began because of the grace and the work of Christ. So it stands to reason that if the work began because of a work of Christ, then it will continue by the work of God. If it was begun by God, it will be maintained and continued and completed 
by God. Now, I want you to think of something. This might be a very painful thing to think about, but um, what in your life is still... Um, what are things that you have started but not yet finished? I'll just word it that way. Can anybody... Yeah, we, we all have those things that we've started, not yet, not yet finished, projects at home. Yeah, some of us. Some of us are the projects at home. That's, that's the reality of it. Um, we, uh, you know, we get something started, maybe... Maybe you're an artist and you began expressing yourself on canvas or spoken word or something, but it's, it's unfinished at this point. We have these great plans and we take a first few steps, but we have that dream that is still unfinished. We have students that have yet to finish what they began. Now, I want us to contrast this with God who brings things to completion. Let's contrast with God and all that he has created. Think of it this way. Nowhere in the universe do we find unfinished worlds or a halfway done sun because God ran out of energy. Nowhere in God's created world do we see anything unfinished because God was incompetent or lost inspiration. Nothing God has created bears the marks of insufficiency of power to finish. Nothing God made was halfway thrown together at the last minute. What God has the grace to begin, he has the strength to complete. He has the vision, the tenacity, the power, the competence, and plenty of time to complete what he began. God will not stop until it is complete. God will not stop until you and I are complete. So when will we be complete? Thankfully, this message is going to be so good, you will be complete by the time you leave, okay? No. When will we be complete? We just need to keep going to church? Do we need, what is it? it? Paul says, we will be complete on the day of Christ. And what he's referring to is the day when Jesus fulfills his promise and he comes back a second time to earth. And at which time he will gather saints, the sinners saved by grace, those living and those dead. He will gather us up, take us to heaven, and it is there in heaven that we will be completed, made whole in his presence for eternity. Uh, I think it was uh, an email I got from Ron Perez, leading, who, who leads um, our ambassadors group. It was just in the last week or so. Um, the email was about something else, but then kind of as a PS almost, he said, hey, I haven't seen your truck in a while. Do you still have your truck? And for those of you that that don't know, I've got this old uh, 71 Ford that uh, drove across the country to get here, and it, it's in pretty rough shape, uh, to say the least. And I replied to him, and I said, no, I still have it. I've just been, been working on a few things. And, and it's one of those deals where we went to work on one thing, but when we uncovered that one thing, there were like 10 other things that we found out we needed to do. So then we started working on those, which then in, led to 10 more and 10 more. And so it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. Um, and so I bought it knowing that it needed a lot of help. Okay, you don't have to be a mechanic to look at that thing and know, yeah, it, it needs some help. Um, but um, I can say that, um, you know, like when people say, so what, when do you think you'll be done with it? My answer is never. It's never, it's never really going to be done. There's always going to be that, that one more, one more thing. But what's kind of strange, even though I bought it, knowing it needed a lot of help, um, I'm not waiting until it's complete to enjoy it. 
And it sounds strange, but I find joy in its becoming. Just with every little thing that gets done, there is joy in its becoming. It will never be complete. There's always going to be that one more thing. But God promises to complete everything and everyone. Before we go to the great garage in the sky, (laughs) we will have rust and worn parts. We will overheat and break down and have trouble, trouble breaking and lose power going up challenging steep hills. But God is not finished with us. And what's really hard for us to wrap our minds around is that God enjoys us while we are still in process. God finds joy and he delights in our becoming. Pretty crazy, huh? But what a gift. You and I, our heart up on jack stands. God loves to crawl around, to tinker, to transform. And he does that one experience at a time. He does that through our relationships around us. He does it one Sunday at a time. He does it one Bible reading at a time throughout the week. But he does that because he loves us. And Paul is saying to these Philippians, I know you're in process. But when we love someone, we're okay with the process, aren't we? In fact, Paul writes in a letter to another group of people, love is patient. In other words, when we love people, hey, I love seeing who you are becoming. We're okay with the process. We live prayerful and hope-filled, not only for who they will be in heaven, but even the more they will become who God created them to be here on earth. Which leads us to verse 7. This is how Paul expresses his patient um, love for them. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul really kind of lays it out there. I mean, he's like, I... I long for you. I, um, I have you in my heart. And maybe you're thinking, well, Paul can say that. He, apparently, Paul was kind of a touchy-feely guy that was okay with expressing himself that way. Um, I want to remind you that before Paul was miraculously converted, became a sinner saved by grace, his name was Saul, and he was feared he went around breathing murderous threats to people. And even after he gave his life to Christ, there were a lot of people like, man, I don't know if I can trust this guy. I mean, he's a dangerous dude. So people have this great fear of him. Um, After his conversion, he endured all kinds of hardships, shipwrecks, being beaten, was bitten by snakes, all of this craziness. I don't know that he was just this touchy-feely. He was a tough guy. Um, we, we read and kind of can infer from some of the things that he wrote that he was probably a very strong athlete. He was someone that understood the difficulty and the challenges and the pain that goes with training yourself physically and equated that spiritually. So Paul was likely a very tough man, 
And he was also tender. I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of my Jesus. Um, It was a Sunday in January about six years ago. I was, um, I was the lead pastor of a little church in Alabama. Um, I was the only pastor at that church in Alabama. Therefore, I declared myself lead pastor. Um, uh, I was the only, only, only staff member. Um, at the time, it was about a three-year-old church plant. Um, it was planted by a good friend of mine who grew up in that area. Uh, he and his family had moved back there and planted this church. And it was planted with the mindset that uh, this church would never have paid staff. That we will, we will plant this church and we will all volunteer and we will all kind of co-lead this. And um, we will, um, all this money that we would be giving to a pastor. In fact, they might have used the word wasted on a pastor. <laughs> Um, that we're going to, it's that much more that we can give to local mission efforts and to global missions. And they just had this real outreach mindset. Well, it, it grew surprisingly fast for them. And it got to the point with their jobs and everything else that they were having trouble, um, just with the maintaining and juggling and all of that. And it was with very differing opinions that they decided to hire a pastor. And that's where I came in. So back to the Sunday in January, the worship team is doing their thing. I'm kind of standing off to the side, um, just kind of worshiping, but also just trying to see what God was doing in our congregation and uh, in, our, in our little congregation that was getting littler by the week. Um, and that Sunday in particular, I started to cry. And the worship set finished, and it was my time to step up and to preach and I knew I was in trouble because this was one of those cries that I couldn't get to stop. I walked up to my usual spot, which was not on the stage. I used to, uh, would teach in front of the stage. And um, after a minute or so of standing there crying, I just slumped down on the edge of the stage and put my face in my hands. And that's when tears went to sobs. And it was, you know what an ugly cry is? Okay, this, this was an ugly cry. I mean, just the full body shakes and all of that. Um, now, at first, I'm, I'm guessing the congregation thought, wow, Gary was really moved by the worship. Uh, but that was not the case. Um, and I would love to tell you that I pulled it together that morning. But I ended up sitting there crying in the silence of that movie theater turned sanctuary crying for five minutes and nobody moved. That's a long time, in case you're wondering. Uh, Five minutes really feels like a long time. And just that it was horribly awkward for all of us. They weren't saying a thing. Nobody knew what to do. I wouldn't know what to do in a situation like that. And you see, what was kind of crashing down was the the fact that things hadn't been going the way that I thought they would. Uh, the church wasn't growing. In fact, the opposite was true. Our little church was getting littler. And that morning, all I could think was, maybe they would have been better without a pastor. And that's when some things shifted in me. 
God kind of opened my eyes. And not only opened my eyes to some stuff, but he somehow gave me the ability um, to speak. And I gave a a one-sentence sermon that day. And I said, I don't know if this church needs a pastor, but I know a pastor who needs a church. And after that, a number of people got up from their seats, um, gathered around me, laid hands on me, prayed for me. And that was the end of our service. Yeah, it was really awkward. I thought of that with this verse that we just read. Paul loved these people. He's saying, I have you in my heart. I, I love you. But did you get this? He's also saying... I long for all of you. So in other words, he's, he's not only saying, I love you. He's saying, I, I need you. The apostle who planted a church also needed a church. He needed good friendships. You see, until you and I recognize and confess that we desperately need each other, none of this is going to make sense. Really, nothing in the Bible is going to make sense until we recognize that we desperately need one another. The Bible, God inspired people who needed other people to write this. And it was written to people who need other people. So until we really get to that point of desperately needing one another, it's not going to make sense. So if you value your title more than you do relationships... You may get ahead and win in life, but you will never experience the joy of friendship. And Paul set pride aside and was like, this is where it's at. There is a joy, an unexplainable joy. That's because I have you in my life. So how do you start off your letter? How do you start off your day? How do you start off building a relationship? Is it by naming your credentials? How do you introduce yourself? What would it be like for us to echo what Paul is essentially saying here? I'm not above you. I'm not beyond you. I'm telling you my life would not be the same without you. I need you. Do you feel the love in this letter? If you got a bulletin, in it was this uh, joy postcard. You're going to be, you'll have an opportunity to receive one or more of these every week as we walk through this series in Philippians over the next six Sundays. And what we would like for you to do is to think about who would be filled with joy to hear from you. We're going to ask you to hand write a letter. Now, some of you have no idea how to even hold a pen anymore, okay? Um, but on the back of this, where it's in front, you bring me joy on the back. Um, keep in mind that you need to leave a little bit of space for an address. I'm just trying to help those of you that have never done this before, okay? And you got to do more than write grandma, all right, in this. And then in this corner, a stamp, okay? Do some of you know that? Some of you, no, you don't, okay? Um, we're not giving you sheets of paper, and say, write a four-chapter letter like Paul did to the Philippians. We're giving you this postcard, and we're just inviting you, what would it look like for you to write just two or three sentences to someone? 
that has meant a lot to you. And each week as we do this, we're going to kind of shape it around some part of Paul's letter that coincides with that. So let me give you a few examples, just some ideas for what you could write. Um, You could say thank you to someone who has supported you or committed to stick with you no matter what the future holds. Somebody come to mind? Just somebody that you would would write, I got to tell you, every time your name comes up, I am immediately filled with joy. Another option, uh, you could tell someone you miss them, and I'm with you in prayer. This could be somebody that you just, unfortunately, you just don't have the opportunity to see as often as you would like. I get the feeling in this letter by Philippians that, uh, to the Philippians that Paul is saying, if I could, I would tell Timothy to pack my bags, we're going to Philippi. But it's just not possible at that moment. So he wrote him a letter. Another idea, what would it be like for you to encourage someone in whom you are convinced that you see God doing a work in them? And not only are you convinced that God has done a work in them, but that he's going to carry it on to completion. Just in your own words, in your own handwriting, it's very obvious to me, I didn't have to work hard to persuade myself God is up to something in your life, and I can't wait to see what God has in store. Because of the letters you will write, we truly believe that this will be a source of joy for others. If you you don't have a bulletin and don't have one of these, uh, we're going to have some ushers available at the exits on the way out, uh, so you can grab one or or several if you... um, feel led to do so. I'm going to ask our worship team to make their way back up on stage, and uh, we're going to read these last few verses for this morning. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, I've shared with you, I've got this love that won't stop for you. And now he's saying, I want your love for each other to abound more and more so that you may be able to discern what is best and that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, is Paul saying, I want your love to overflow because I want you to experience the same goosebumps that I do? (laughs) No. In fact, he tells us exactly why. He's saying, um, I want your love to grow so that you can discern what is best. Discernment is seeing the difference between two things. Love has a way of bringing things into focus. If you're like me, you've been to the eye doctor several times, you'll know what I'm talking about. They, they put this big instrument uh, piece thing in front of you, and it's filled with a variety of lenses that they keep bringing across in front of your eyes. And the uh, person administering this test will say two things for a long time, A or B. A or B, and with each time they flip the lens, and if, it, if A is clearer, then you say A, and then they give you a new B to look at, A or B. Love sharpens our vision 
so that we can see whether something is true or not. So instead of, if you're at a crossroads, instead of asking God if we should choose A or B, it's more like we ask, where would overflowing love take me? Because this is actually the word picture that Paul is painting here. When he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more, it's a picture of a bucket overflowing with water. And it's this picture of this endless stream of God's heart of love flowing into us, filling us, overflowing us onto other people, back onto God himself. This is a love that is abounding more and more. There's a line in this song that we're about to sing. And it says, fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Can we sing this just with this image of being buckets? overflowing with God's love on the people around us. Let's pray. Very simply, God, we ask that you would send your heart of love pouring into us, filling us, love splashing out, overflowing to those around us. Have your way. Amen.